Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Doluale. Thanks for being with us. Two fairly alarming pieces of information have emerged about the COVID-19 pandemic that show it continues to be a source of serious concern. First, the World Health Organization, the WHO, says that the worldwide death toll from the pandemic is actually about 15 million. That's about three times previous estimates. Second, media outlets in the United States, which has the world's highest death toll from COVID, estimate that more than 100 million more people could be infected over the coming fall and winter. That's this year. Then there's the continuous rising pace of infections being handled by mass testing and lockdowns in China. Here in Africa, there are those who say with its rising infection rate, South Africa is already in its fifth wave of infections. How is Nigeria preparing for this and what can it do to best handle the possibility of a new infections wave? Newsnight talks to the chairman of the country's committee of experts on COVID-19, Professor Oyewale Tomori. Professor Oyewale Tomori, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. My pleasure to see you again. Let's, uh, let me begin by asking you what some might consider you know, an obvious question. Are you surprised by the resurgence, seeming resurgence, that is, uh, that COVID-19 is making in, in parts of the world uh, at this time? No, I'm not. I mean, it was something expected. Suddenly, the world assumed that it was over, and then, what do you call it, uh, relaxed all the, the preventive methods, stopped, in fact, the, the urge for vaccination actually stopped. But then, even though, as people say, uh, we are tired of COVID, the virus was not tired of us, so it came back. Given that scenario, of course, uh, as you pointed out, uh, at the time, you had, in fact, said so that... Uh, uh, COVID had not gone. We wanted it gone, but it had not gone. So would it be correct to describe it as a resurgence or the fact that it's just simply making its presence felt once again? I, I think the word resurgence would be if our testing and our monitoring had remained stable then you can talk about resurgence. You know, but right now, we lost, there's a gap between the testing and this. So we didn't know what was going on then. You know? So it was like we deliberately got no, no testing, no numbers, and then suddenly it's becoming clear to us that we have a major problem. And soon as the, the global preventive measures were relaxed all over without really consideration for the science, but most times for politics. And we're now seeing what is happening. As you said, many of the African countries, we were talking about vaccination before. Nobody's talking about that anymore. Even in Europe, where they managed to do their vaccination, they too have abandoned all that one. So it gave it a little time for us, for more people, for the virus to spread amongst unprotected people. And that's what is happening. So you may say it's a, it's a resurgence uh, because we relaxed our own preventive measures. But if we have maintained those preventive measures and been tested, I think the numbers probably will remain kind of stable, uh, you know, that kind of situation. There's a sense of uh, deja vu about all of this because uh, two years plus down the line, uh, this uh, pandemic started in China. At uh, that time, it started in Wuhan and then went all over the world. 
Again, uh, leading the way this time is China again. Uh, in the last uh, couple of days, it has recorded 20,000 plus cases uh, every day uh, for some time. And um, even though these are nowhere near the numbers uh, that were at a point in time at, when the pandemic was full blown before, those who talk about its progressive ability uh, indicate that if you have 20,000 plus at this point, it could double, triple, quadruple in a very, very short time. Yeah, you're right. Uh, um, I mean, the figures uh, where it looks like they're doing globally, we're talking about 500 million people and different countries, uh, US 82 million, UK about 40 something million. Africa hasn't shown that much of figures apart from South Africa, which has about 3.2 million. The rest are in the 200,000, uh, 160,000 or whatever. Uh, but part of it all, uh, first of all, I think we need to compare the two sides. Part of it all is that uh, it, all these things, epidemics start not in large numbers, but in small numbers. And then when you don't take care of that, then it becomes the big numbers. Every epidemic starts with one case. And that's what happens. So this is, I think this may be the beginning of another major issue coming up in China. But the good thing with China is that they, they react, you know, I, I don't want to use the word ferociously, fiercely, when they see anything that looks, you know, straight to them. And that's why they locked down Shanghai and a few other places. But, and that has actually helped them because if you look at the China, I mean, the number for China, which start, where it started, they are, they are still less than 200,000. And other countries are, even Nigeria, that we say we don't have a problem. The number we have is even higher than what China has right now. So, of course, maybe they surpass us now that uh, they are getting this, this, this big outbreak. So, the thing is, the epidemic will continue to rise. There will be enough vulnerable people. I mean, one, I think one thing we need to realize is that the, the, the major problem we're having is with the variants. If it had been the original Wuhan virus, which has been spread in the world. I think we should have gotten over it now with the vaccination. But the problem always starts with one variant comes and then you have waves. Another variant comes and then we have waves. We get used to that and then we think we're okay. And then a new variant comes affecting people. And of course, maybe the severity may change from time to time. But the numbers, you know, depending on the characteristics of the virus, it may become more infectious or spread easily, very easily transmitted. And that's why we're getting all those upsurge. If you look at the waves that have been coming, this last wave in particular came up very rapidly and it kind of disappeared. And that was what gave the wrong impression to people that the matter was over. You remember most of the other waves were taking like months before, you know, six, seven, eight months. But this last one, within two months, most of the cases were going down. Uh, and then so there was this wrong impression that, oh, the thing is over. But then, so long as there are a case of any disease in any part of the world, the world is not free. Now, let me give you one good example. You know, we're talking about polio. Yeah. Uh, Africa is supposed to be free from polio. Malawi, in the last three months, got a case of wild polio. Where did it come from? It came from Pakistan. Malawi has never had a case of polio for the last 17 years. So, so long as there's one case in any part of the world, none of us is free. And that's why that vaccination must continue. The uh, preventive measures must continue. Otherwise, we just keep getting upsurges as soon as new variants come out. And we are creating the opportunity for the variants to come out. by not vaccinating our people. And therefore, those new variants come and then create the problems they created. 
I said, if, for example, it was only that Wuhan virus that had been the cause of what, we probably would have forgotten there was any COVID now, but we created the environment for new variants to come out. And this is a very great survivalist virus, very smart and very sensible, you know, it knows how to survive. And so when we relax, then it comes up. Then uh, the other thing, of course, is that many people I've spoken to in the last couple of days have asked the question, what predisposes a, a particular uh, country or a particular area to these uh, waves and uh, um, mutations of COVID-19? I, I, you referenced China. China was where it began. China has had periodic flare-ups, but as you said, on each occasion, they have re re reacted ferociously and uh, that kind of ferocious reaction has tended to contain it. But then you have a country like the United States where the vaccination levels are on average, uh, but they've had a lot of people, lost a lot of people uh, to COVID-19. Uh, the fatality rate in the United States is probably the highest in the world. And again, they are also witnessing a resurgence. Is there something that predisposes particular countries to COVID-19? And if so, what are these? I think what we need to look at is the epidemiology of the, of the virus or the disease, as I said. And there's very many factors. We differ from country to country. You know, majority in Africa, we've not, we have, we report little cases, also part of the fact that we're not testing enough. But then when you look at the population pyramid, who are the people being affected? Who are the people who are dying? Who are the people getting severe disease? Mostly the elderly people, people 60 years and above, who also have other conditions, uh, hypertension, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, all those kind of things, other cancers. And so these are people who are already compromised to start with. So when, and they are old, when the, the immune system is also not as sharp as it should be for a younger person. And so when you have that kind of population, then you have a large number of cases. And that's what has happened. So between Africa and those places, it's a matter of the population pyramid. Why the population pyramid in the world, in, in Africa, is a good pyramid with big base and top. The population pyramid in many other parts of the world is actually upside down because you have older people at the top and younger people at the bottom. And therefore, when the thing comes, it hits their population. Also bear in mind, there's in many of these countries, you mentioned America, where there's so much of freedom of expression. You know, government says one thing, you say no, uh, anti-vaccine, anti-everybody, all come in different places. They compound the problem of the government. And that's why you can compare the draconian system in Taiwan, in um, uh, places like China, where they, you know, put it on, everybody obeys it, and therefore they have fewer cases, even though they may have the same kind of population problem. Japan, too, has the population system as you have in Europe, but then because of their strict adherence, the non-pharmaceutical intervention, they're able to cope the, the, the problem. So when you look at all that, of course, they have better healthcare system, uh, which in a week we had a little bit of problem. Uh, the other day, I was just telling some people that our health system has been deformed by too many reforms. That's the problem we're having. So, so when you have that condition, your poor health system, your population that is, you know, or, sorry, let me put it that way. When you have a combination of uh, elderly people, you know, who are, who are more exposed and more vulnerable. Then you have more cases over there. We have been a bit lucky in Africa because our population is not the vulnerable type. These are the young people who will get infected, will not show symptoms, but they're still spreading the disease. So we have that kind of situation.
that we have the population we have in Europe with the health system we have. We will have a different story to be telling now. Given that, given that, let me bring you to, you know, specifically the Nigerian environment. Um, because we are not testing, as you said, uh, because we've abandoned uh, uh, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, all the various mandates have been loosened. Uh, basically, it's back to business as usual. Um, and therefore, yeah. but this time around, we again, like we did before, have some pre-notice. We are seeing the resurgence. Um, in some of these other locations. And so we have the opportunity, if we say so, uh, to prepare somewhat uh, for it coming here because all borders are once again open and so on. So it, it won't take too long uh, for someone or some people from any of these places uh, to make their way to Nigeria. So if you were to step by step, and I know you have said that we need to do this several times in the past uh, with limited success but if we are having the opportunity we have now what are the things that we need to do before this hits here you see first and foremost we it's unfortunate that we don't we forget the lessons of the past very soon as soon as you know we manage to learn some lessons but then once the problem is over we forget the lessons and go back to what we are just like you're saying and therefore, a country that has experienced, you look at the epidemics, our waves that are coming, it has started from somewhere in the world. They've had a wave like a month before us, two weeks before us, and then our own came. And then associated with the fact that the traveling period, people are coming home during Christmas, uh, people are coming home after the school holidays when their are children coming, people are coming in early Easter, people are congregating. We know all those things. It is to prepare against them. We know that. If these conditions come around, we will get uh, we will get the epidemic. I mean, the waves and the big epidemic that will come. But one advantage, which I think uh, we are still looking at, is the fact that over the period when the waves have come, many more people have got infected in Nigeria and in many African countries. For example, several surveys that were done during the first epidemic, which uh, NCDC carried out, only about twenty percent of the people showed evidence of having been infected. Uh, but then compare that one to the data we have, it's almost about, uh, we are about 5% infected, but the survey showed at least 20% infected. When the second wave came, the number of people, cells of it showed almost double, at least about 40% of our people were infected. Then during the third wave, we naturally carried another study by another group, they found almost 60 to 70% of the people. So our people are being infected, there's no doubt about that one. However, we're not showing the big, big epidemic, uh, serious disease that they're seeing in other parts of the world. However, that doesn't mean that uh, this is now they're seeing so many things about COVID. We're not very, we're all working in a bit of ignorance. You know, uh, we're learning as we go along. If most of other people talking about long COVID, other kind of conditions coming even after the diseases, we must begin to look at all those ones, not just say, oh, uh, we're not showing it, but people are getting infected. What's happening? To our health system, what's happening to the number of diseases we're getting? Another important thing which I need, I want to tell you. You remember during the COVID in 2020, uh, the, before 2020, we had a large number of uh, uh, Lassa fever cases in, in thousands. The number went down drastically in 2020, and people were giving us some excuses. Oh, uh, see something has improved, and I said no. It was because people were no longer reporting. Every focus was on COVID. 
Now, 2021, 2022, the numbers of Lassa fever have risen even higher than what it was in, in 2019. So this is what COVID has done to us. We have abandoned all those other things. I think it's a lesson we need to learn. COVID is still around. I mentioned to you what happened with Malawi. They've not had uh, polio for 17 years. Then they got it. So long as there's this disease somewhere, we should be looking at monitoring what is happening in other parts of the world. Where are those cases occurring? How was the chance the relationship between us in terms of transportation, movement of people between those places? Now you mentioned Ukraine. People from Ukraine are moving to other parts of the world. Those, those countries where they are moving to, uh, Poland and others, they are putting in place systems to protect themselves. We should begin to begin to look at that also. These cases that are occurring in other parts of the world, the people from there come to our country. It is not to relax, but to, you know, to, to look at this and strengthen the prevention. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, it's the reverse. Why, again, many of us uh, in, in Africa in particular, we follow the example of what is happening in Europe and wait for Europe to decide for us how to do without looking at our own epidemiology. And that's why we remember when we locked down, like everybody locked down. It didn't make any sense. Because really, how is the disease transmitted? You need combination of people. You need the people gathering together. So we should have targeted those aspects of our life where there's a lot of gathering together and focus on those ones rather than say lockdown. Your market, my market, the market you and I go to, the distance between me and the next person is like, you know, quite a long distance. And open free air. Virus is not going to survive under that condition. But when you and I stay as we are now, I'm in an air conditioned room here in this hotel. I have six or seven of us here, and somebody has that disease. It's easy to spread compared to when we go to a lava market, you know, when the air is blowing and all of that. Kind of thing. So we need to look at our own condition and our environment. Where are the places where we are likely to get transmission? Churches, mosques, Owambe parties, all those kind of things. And we should target those ones rather than say ban everybody from moving. Government offices where people meet in offices, yes, you, you, you need that. I know the government came up with say if you are entering a, a government office, if you're on the road or something, if you're entering a bus, but see the complication. So you tell me when I'm outside the bus, I don't put on my mask. But when I enter the bus, I put on my mask. If I'm going to the ministry office, I should wear my mask. So which is easier? Take it off, wear it, take it off, wear it, take it off, or have it on to protect you. Because you never know, you know, when you are stopping next, you don't know where you are going. So that's why I'm saying that in a way, I, I think we are copying what is happening in Europe without this. And bear in mind, in Europe, you remember, many of them, the vaccination is in the 60, 70, 80 percent, which means a lot of uh, people are kind of protected, whether we like it or not, which is the reverse here. So because Europe with 60 percent recovery has banned, has relaxed, does it mean we, with 10% coverage, should relax? No. Those are the kind of things I think we need to begin to look at. Study your environment, study your situation, and plan accordingly. Our situation, uh, as you have alluded to slightly, does not lend itself to easy planning, uh, because already we have shortfalls virtually in every sphere. And because of mm -hmm. that, uh, the issue of decided even which options to explore uh, in, in themselves become uh, a, a difficulty. Uh, the, the example of the markets that you gave, the examples of large gatherings and all of that are part of our DNA. And we were beginning to settle into that life pattern 
when it seemed as if COVID uh, then went away and then everybody went back to business as usual and then now it's making its way back, uh, it appears. So if that, if that is the case, are we realistically expected to, for example, reopen the testing centers, uh, reimpose some form of mandate, particularly those of vaccination, which you have mentioned, uh, because nobody's talking about vaccination anymore. I know a lot of people who not only got vaccinated, but went as far as to get booster shots when you know it was all the rage. But when all of this was relaxed, I'm sure many people can't even locate their vaccination cards anymore. Uh, and those who have, were not vaccinated before will ask themselves the question, why should I go and do it now? Uh, when it seems as if there's really no need and there are no penalties for not doing so. So, you know, thank you very much. There's so many factors, and I will look at which one will pay me better or best of all the, should I go back to testing? Should I open my border? Should I do that? You know, to me, all those, uh, if you can, we know we can't maintain testing. Let's not deceive ourselves. But I think we can get our people to get vaccinated. And I'll tell you why I go for vaccination as the best option. In countries where there have been good vaccinations, people may get infected, but they don't get, good, get hospitalized, they don't die. The majority of the people who get vaccinated, you know, have mild infection, they are not hospitalized, and this is, so if this is gonna be with us, whether we like it or not, our best bet is to go back to vaccination. Get your people vaccinated. The, 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 the leeway that the European countries are having is based on the fact that they vaccinated their people. And you know the interesting thing about this disease? The people who are vaccinated, we that are not vaccinated, are creating the variant that is knocking out their vaccination. So in the past of the world, where we have had problems with vaccination, you know, and that's where we are creating the variants that is knocking out the vaccination has been done. So the world has to balance itself and come together so we can help each other. Because if there are no variants, those who have been vaccinated will be protected. So for one, my own best bet for us is go back to vaccination. Get our people vaccinated. So long as this virus is still going to be with us for whatever is the reason. No, the only our safest defense is not in the test, which helps in one way. Our safest defense is in the vaccination. So I will focus on vaccination. Vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Even if the virus is around, we can then, you know, have a little bit of it being spread. And I was saying that the ability of the euro to relax is because of that backlog of that vaccination uh, level that they reach. So they can take a little bit of gamble. But we can't dare to do that. You, you remember, we are having outbreaks of um, vaccine-derived polio virus in the country because of our poor vaccination. And that's what is happening. So in, in the situation as we are, where the virus is still around and until it's finished where it is, our best bet is to get vaccinated. Um, you've seen evidence that over the years, we have not succeeded too well with our tracing, our contact tracing, our testing, and all that one. Because we're depending on so many things. The agents we don't make, the labs that are on, if you go to the NCDC website, you'll find that every week they tell you about 50 to 60 of the labs are no longer testing. So let's forget, I mean, that's a weak spot. But the only strength, I think the strength that we have in this country is to vaccinate our people. So even if the thing is around, we're going to have the mild infection or little infection at all. I'm not an epidemiologist, Prof, uh, but having spoken to you and uh, people like you, 
uh, one tends to at least have a bit of the rudimentary knowledge. Now, you've alluded to it earlier when you talked about the mutations and the fact that these yes. mutations in the areas where either uh, uh, the vaccination levels are low and therefore the infection levels are high, even the mutations that keep getting uh, created sometimes even knock out uh, the vaccination for those who have appeared to be protected. So again, if we are yes. to get rid of COVID-19, we've got to tackle that issue of the spread and the mutations. Now, perhaps you could, in as simple a language as possible, explain okay. how this happens. Because I know that we have heard of the alpha, the beta, the delta, the Omicron, and then at some point there was the Omicron plus either beta or delta and all of that. We've heard of all of those. Is that still yes. going on, even though there is no longer, apparently, a great deal of public scrutiny or attention being focused on it? Good. You, you know, viruses will always mutate, whether we like it or not. But it's their way of survival against all of the defense that you and I create against them. Sometimes the mutation knocks them out and is of no use to anybody. But sometimes you have one that will mutate and overcome our defense mechanism. And in actual fact, what happens is that if I'm back, I get the first dose, I'm not fully vaccinated, then the virus comes into me. There are two things that can happen. It's either my immunity is not strong enough, so the virus adapts and overcomes that or evades that immunity to become something else. And that's the, the process of mutation. So when it becomes something else, even though I've been immunized or other people have been but because it is not the exact the virus that was used in producing the vaccine, the reaction to it will be different, will be less than the other one. It's like, you know, match for match. You find people in the same family, their twins are identical, their siblings, are, they resemble, but they don't look alike. And in a polygamous house, you see that kind of thing. So this kind of thing that happens with viruses. In, in a lot of countries, in Africa, for example, because of poor immunity, poor nutrition, and all that one, See, these are people with chronic diseases like HIV and other. When a virus like that comes into them, you know, the body's immunity is not strong enough to overcome the virus. And the body, I mean, the virus then tries to change, you know, to overcome the little immunity that have and comes out as a variant. So when that variant goes into somebody else, you remember the vaccine, the, what was used to produce a vaccine, is not the known variant. So though you may have small immunity, but because it's a variant, it will kind of overcome your immunity to some extent. And if you have other problems, and of course, then get a full-blown disease. And that's why, irrespective of what you say, the vaccine still provides you some protection. But so that's why I raised the issue of the fact that the world has to work together. So long as there's a part of the world because of insufficient vaccination, chronic disease that is producing variants, it's going to make nonsense of all the, the vaccinations that the others are doing, or at least, you know, reduce the effectiveness of the vaccination they have done. That's why we need to all work together so that we can take out all these all this virus. Remember, again, I keep going back to polio. Polio has been regulated in Western Pacific more than four, five, six years ago. But yes. they still have the one part of Asia, which is uh, Pakistan, and, and that's the cause of all the problems we're having now. And that's the reason why we're getting this. So until everybody is protected, just like WHO has said, nobody is free. 
So back to the question you raised. This, this is how it's called. So because my low immunity or poor immunity, the virus that I get, whether it's coming from Europe, means that it adapts itself to survive. And in doing that, it comes out with something different, which is not, which we can overcome the immunity of my vaccination. Prof, I, I appreciate your try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, but now moving on to the point that you touched on briefly and which research had started um, before it seemed as if everybody then turned attention away. And that was when you mentioned the whole issue of long COVID uh, as one of the things that was seen to be the outcome of people, uh, uh, widespread uh, infections uh, with COVID and the severity or non-severity of such infections on those who got it. Uh, there were some people who got COVID, recovered and returned to life. There were others that never fully completely recovered uh, from it. They were back to medical health, but they were not back to full health. Uh, and yeah. there, were there was research ongoing as to what could be the reason for the difference and what could be the consequences of people having to live with even uh, the likes of long COVID. So, in, in, in talking about the seeming resurgence of COVID now, uh, is it a viable or do you think it's a necessary thing to return to that research if at any point it stopped? Because then it will not just be a question of, oh yeah, I had COVID, I got over it and I'm back to health. But the long-term effect of having COVID both on possibly your immune system and on the body organs which were affected in the course of having COVID. Yeah, thank you very much, my friend. You know, I made mention at the beginning that all of us, whether in Europe or whatever, we're all working in ignorance. This was a disease nobody knew anything about. And we're learning as we went along. But while they were following and learning on their own, we sat down and waiting for them to dictate to us what to do. And that's where the problem is. They are spending their money doing those research, finding out about long COVID, new things, they're discovering things, and they're looking at how do we find that situation. But we are complacent. Uh, they will find the solution for us, and when they come, we'll be ready for call. Sometimes it'll be too late by that time. So it is true. The study on COVID will have to continue. As we discover new things about it, as more information comes about it, and new things are being coming out, that people would need to continue to study because the virus is still around. And so even those of us who have either recovered and uh, gotten it and recovered, uh, if a new variant comes, it, my body may not be able to cope with that. So therefore, we need to continue study and be ahead of the virus. And that's the problem we're having. The we are running after the virus now, health and skeleton, in different direction. But research, you know, and then suddenly when it seemed as if there was some order, then there was a realization, and everybody went back to DC. I think we're going to pay for that, whether we like it or not. If we lose focus, we have lost focus on COVID. And when it comes back, I just pray it's not as bad as what it was before. But these are possibilities of what will happen. Because with the mutation and the differences that come, like I mentioned, sometimes the mutation will kill the virus itself and nothing will happen. But who knows which one is going to come? None of us knows. Uh, this is a game of blind man's bluff because you're, you're not really sure of which one it is. We're, we're either playing blind man's bluff or Russian roulette, if, if you like, uh, because yeah. you don't know in which chamber 
the bullet is is in and therefore you keep firing until you get to that one uh, but let me now take you to something related to that which you also touched on because you said look while all of us drop the ball everywhere else and focus the attention on covid other more familiar monsters grew in strength and uh, uh, and in width and you referenced lassa fever now lassa fever yeah. was is just one of uh, of the viral infections uh, that we had been dealing with all along. Now, one of the others that seemed to have grown in strength while all attention was focused on COVID was tuberculosis as well. Um, it seemed as if a larger number of people uh, have gotten tuberculosis and for which this is something that um, the cure or the treatment process is extremely long and sometimes the patients, just like you've just explained with COVID, perhaps may not fully or completely recover back to strength. What can you tell us about those various other points at which we dropped the ball? Uh, starting with, uh, of course, you've talked about Lassa fever, but uh, uh, moving on to tuberculosis, uh, we've talked about whooping cough, uh, we've talked about uh, yeah. HIV and so on. I mean, the various viral diseases. Now, you see, unfortunately, because we have problem with data, we probably won't discover all these things until much later. And that's why I gave the example of Lassa. If you look back in 2020, because we're not going to the hospital, uh, the numbers dropped down, the number reported dropped. Drop. And then now that maybe hospitals are coming back, we're not seeing the so-called numbers. Uh, uh, you, you, said, you said it clearly at the beginning, whether we should call it a resurgence or an upsurge. We lost that gap in 2020. So we don't really know whether the number will continue to rise or not. So unfortunately, we have to call it a resurgence because we look at our figures in 2020 and said so. Now you mentioned also uh, 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 tuberculosis, HIV, and so many other things that we should normally take preventive measures for. We have stopped in that for fear of COVID. All of the government funding and things have been focused on COVID. And yet, look at our immunization rate, for example. Because of COVID, we couldn't get the routine immunization up to the level that we want it to be. It's only maybe just rising now. But there are millions of children who did not get vaccinated in 2020, 2021. These will be the ones that are coming up with all the working costs and all the other things that we're talking about. And so that I said, in another few years, when we look at our data, we'll see that this period, you were actually uh, neglected diseases, you know, which, which we are now seeing that they are. And the only way to do that would be to do a retrospective studies. How many of you actually died? And if you are not testing for TB, you will know what, what happened to them. In other parts of the world, they are doing what they call the death register. They are checking, going back to the, the death list of death, what could have caused their death. I'm finding that there are many, many other things which are causing those diseases. A lot of people that now who should be able to get in their drugs for hypertension or for whatever, or who should be taking care of themselves for the diabetes, you know, cannot do that because of either lack of uh, uh, drugs or something of that nature. We're going to see the deaths occurring, uh, excess death, they used to call it, that will come with time. So you mentioned yellow fever. I mean, sorry, you mentioned the Lassa fever. You mentioned um, uh, tuberculosis. HIV. Yes. Tuberculosis. Yes, HIV. Yes. Yeah, we had a large outbreak of cholera recently. Yes. At one time, in Bamatia or something of that nature. 
Um, we've had monkeypox in which we're giving monkeypox to other people in the world. So there are quite a few of all these diseases which if our data were, were, were okay, we would have known that COVID caused more problems than just COVID itself. That brings us then to our coping mechanism, Prof, uh, which is the healthcare system. A lot of people felt, well, yeah, a lot of people felt that um, the, the arrival of COVID had at least one salutary effect, which was that it put a very uh, laser sharp focus on Nigeria's healthcare system, which up until then, only those within the system uh, uh, were able to complain or those who were unfortunate enough to get sick and had to go to the uh, hospitals uh, were able to, uh, were confronting the system uh, firsthand. And that, that meant that we increased our capacity, both in terms of beds, uh, in terms of infrastructure, because we had no choice. Now, along with the relaxation that came with the belief that COVID was gone, um, it seemed as if the business as usual also spread uh, to the continuous investment in the healthcare system yeah. and its infrastructure. I, I, is that a fair comment? Is that true? I think it's a very fair comment. And it's also one thing, what we call a positive effect of COVID on health system is actually temporary. Uh, I'll give you a very good example. When we started, NCDC said we had two, three labs that could do COVID. And then during this period, the build it up to about 140, you know, uh, so, which is a positive thing on, on, on that one. But then go back to the same NCDC website and you'll find 60, 70, almost 50% of all these laboratories are no longer functioning. So we've lost, they're no longer reporting, they're no longer testing. So the, the, the frenzy to improve the health system was only temporary. And it, I gave a talk to the, uh, the NMA, the annual lecture, we were talking about brain drain and medical tourism. I know I brought out one 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 thing. Uh, Professor Lucas in 2000 described our health system as you know it is blind, it is deaf, it is impotent. That was in 2000. You know, recently the Lancet uh, group came up with something on our health uh, in Nigeria. Said almost exactly the same thing which Lucas said in 2000. So that tells you that in spite of the so-called upsurge, that the positive effect of COVID, it is only temporary. And really, when we look at it, you know, uh, the so-called support that came in here, uh, part of it became a thing because a lot of people get opportunity to get contracts. Uh, you know, when we deal things, we make contracts. The building of 140 lab was not because we needed 140, but because, you know, there was opportunity to have contracts and build labs which you will not equip, which you will not supply with reagents. So it, it, it's a temporary, on the surface type of thing that COVID has done and improved. Yes, it brought focus on health system, but we're not making any permanent solution to it. And that's the problem. We are listening, we are playing to the gallery. Government is doing something. Government is doing something, but government is not sustaining that something. So we'll be back to where we started from. Each time I talk to you, Prof, uh, it, it, it brings into sharp focus the issue of personnel and the fact that those uh, of the next generation who are to take over from the likes of you uh, uh, with 
the level of international exposure and experience and the capacity uh, to tackle these public uh, health emergencies and situations uh, don't seem to be there. Uh, not too long ago, the Nigerian Medical Association uh, had uh, a conclave where it was discussing brain drain uh, because now even those who are staying behind see that uh, the, with the numbers that are leaving, even they who stay behind, the system is not viable enough uh, for them to operate optimally within it, even when they decide to stay back. Uh, are, are you concerned about that or have you simply given up that this is not something about which you would expend energy anymore, uh, having said so much and tried to do so much in the past? No, we can't give up on our country. We cannot. And we must keep talking because of the generation that is coming. Uh, if I'm gone, I'll have children, I have grandchildren, and I want a better country for them. So I can't, we can't stop talking. We must continue to talk. You raised a very, very important but I was happy at the NMEC and actually gave the lead talk about that. Uh, it, it, it's disheartening. It, you know, uh, when you look at the history of brain drain, how it started way back in the 70s and became what it is now, and yet government knew the solution to it, but they, 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 they do not act because, and let me put it in, and I said it, because it doesn't affect them. You know, when I'm a minister of education, you know, and all my children are overseas in schooling and graduating during summer, something is wrong somewhere. When I set up a university in Nigeria and my children are graduating in another university overseas, uh, what are we talking about? When my president thought we are going to build, uh, you know, I mean, if I read the book that they're building some fantastic uh, clinic at the Asurok, I was shocked when the comment made then was that when visiting head of states come, they can find a place to treat them. And I said, what are you talking about? The people that you voted you in, <laughs> you are not caring about that. You're putting two hundred something billion to build a hospital because you are caring about visiting head of state. That's the problem. And we must continue to point it out to our people. They are there for the people, not just for themselves, but also for the ordinary people of the country. And so I gave those examples. If I had a minister of education whose children are schooling overseas, he had no right to be a minister of education. If I have a proprietor of a university, who, who are a private university, who set up a university, and his children are graduating overseas, something is wrong somewhere. They should remove his license. Those are the kind of things we should be looking at. Accountability, transparency, bring it to the people. And we continue to talk, and we cannot keep on talking until this country becomes what it is. This country was good for people like us before. It was same human beings. There were not uh, people from Mars that ran the country at that time. They were human beings. So why can't we do the same? And that's the reason why we cannot give up. We must not give up. We must continue to talk, you know, until something gets done. Something possibly gets done for this country. I hope they're all listening, all those people in authority. The, the other day, let me quickly end up. We, we, you, you remember the pensions that the governors gave themselves in different states and all over the office there. Some are asking for 200 million, whatever. You know, uh, asking for uh, cars to be changed every three years, uh, build a house in Abuja, build one in this thing. You know, you set me for four years, you retire eight years, and then you take all those pensions. 
There's a civil servant in university professor who spends 35 years serving this country diligently. He doesn't have a car to, 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 to drive around. And these same people who are this, this government will have security guards after them. It is so when they die, will the security guard be watching their coffin? These are some of the things we need to look at. I checked the one for the United States. We were following the United System. What is the remuneration for retiring people? In the US, a governor who retires you know, only gets a certain percentage of the retiring salary. That's all he gets. And if you retire prematurely, the percentage drops. Every other thing that you get is what every other worker for the government gets. They copy the, the ones that favor them, and they forget this one. You know, and these are issues that we need to begin to talk about. I mean, a head of state or a former governor who are in retirement makes the location for him to go overseas. Something is wrong somewhere. And these are the things we are not need to be talking about. Indeed, these are the things we need to be talking about. Uh, Professor Oyewale Tomori, I want to thank you so much uh, for your patience, for your time, and for your perspective today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, my friend. It's always a pleasure talking with you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I'm Ladi Akiri Duluale. Goodbye.